When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, hello. Welcome to week five of my isolation. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am Liv, a woman trying to keep her sanity living alone in this. If you follow me on Twitter, you might have participated in a recent poll where I talked about wanting to reimagine one or some of my earliest stories of the heroes. 
This is both because, one, way back in the day, I barely had any research material, and I'm pretty sure I used mostly Wikipedia for Perseus and Theseus, which in hindsight, I find to be a travesty. The way I tell stories now, I'm far more proud of. They're heavily, deeply researched, and far more accurate to the mythology, and also just, I think, better storytelling. And I went and used up all the heroes right at the beginning. A mistake. But also, two, I really really need a crazy, entertaining, and ridiculous story to tell you all right now. I'm having so much trouble focusing on any creative ventures at the moment, and when I sit down and crack open the Aeneid, something in me dies. So we're taking another pause on Aeneas because I think we could all use some quality entertainment right now, and that is the only way I can provide you with quality entertainment. Anyway, what was I saying? Right, the poll. So I took a poll and technically Perseus won. And I actually originally wanted him to win, but I've pulled rank on my Twitter followers and Perseus himself and decided instead to retell you, in theory, the story of Theseus. For now, at least, and here's why. Theseus has much, much more to him, including the entire episode that you're about to listen to, which I promise is basically completely new material that I've come across while researching Theseus. He's not even in this story yet. There's so much in and around his story, in addition to multiple versions of the stories, which I'm hoping will also mean I can put together Patreon companion episodes about him or the stories surrounding him, thus getting two goals with one. Also, I've been rereading The Marriage of Cadmus and Harmony lately and have learned some new things about the awful man that is Theseus and the mythology around his father and Athens itself and all these other stories. Basically, me revisiting Theseus is spurring on all these other new stories that we can tell and really dive into. Theseus is such a dick, don't you want to know more about him? His story also evolves into other stories like that of Ariadne and Dionysus. It'll be great offshoot episodes to provide new stories, including ones about Dionysus. We all love him. And that will keep us all entertained, whether you're alone in your apartment nonstop forever, like me, or still going to work as one of our magnificent essential workers. We can stay distracted, laughing at, and hating Theseus together like the super dark and weird family that is the ancient Greek god. Gods. That all said, this episode is all about other people, and it's simply leading up to more about Theseus. That was unexpected, hence why I wrote this whole preceding thing about redoing Theseus. Even I thought I was going to be talking about him in today's episode, but here we are. This is episode 77, King Aegeus Wants an Heir, Not a War with Minos, and Another Tragic Scylla. Our story begins in Athens. Aegeus is king of the original bloodline of Athens, descended from those early snake people I discussed in an episode with that in the name. Aegeus, though, is not a snake person. They didn't last long. He is, however, of noble OG Athenian blood. Athens was a proud city of Polis, as you might imagine, given how important they were and stayed in the history of ancient Greece and its mythology. They were Rome-like in that way, considering themselves the best of the best. But of course, it's also important to note, there was no unified Greece. That's something I probably don't mention enough. I always use the word Greece, but Greece wasn't a thing. The word did not exist. The people of the region considered themselves all Hellenes, but that is all that united them, in the same way that Europeans consider themselves as such. But everyone had their own country, and those countries are separate. This is how it was in the Hellenic world, even more so in this very, very early world of mythology. 
They fought each other, judged each other, considered some to have monstrous customs, to worship the wrong gods. If they weren't fighting the Persians, they were fighting each other. So they had to have a hero of their own, a hero that gave them the clout they felt they deserved, that exemplified all the qualities of their polis. Theseus was this hero for Athens. They considered him to be the best of them. Edith Hamilton says that there grew to be a saying in Athens, quote, nothing without Theseus. But before Theseus, we have to have his father, Aegeus. Aegeus, as current king of Athens, is desperately seeking an heir. He fought with his brothers for his power, so he isn't about to lose it all upon his death. He needs a son, someone to take over for him when he dies to carry on his name as king of Athens. But his first wife, Melite, doesn't conceive her fault, clearly. So Aegeus moves on to his second wife, Chalciope. And before you ask, no, there's no mention of what happens to his first wife. Could people divorce in mythological Greece? Doubtful. Did he kill her so he could marry again? Unclear, as there's absolutely no concern paid to the fate of either wife. Because, spoilers, Chalciope can't conceive either. Again, it must be all her fault. Rather than looking inward and considering, hey, maybe, just maybe, it's me and not them, Aegeus looks to move on once more. This time, though, he doesn't just go pick another random woman, hoping she's fertile. No, he goes to seek guidance from the Oracle. Oh, the Oracle. Now, this part you'll remember from the earlier episode, though I'll note that I seem to have not found the info about the original wives back then, and they're fun. Aegeus seeks guidance from the Oracle on how he can father an heir. Help me, oh Oracle, and please don't fuck with me. He probably didn't say that. He would have trusted the Oracle implicitly, even if all evidence points to absolute mindfuckery coming from the Oracles at every turn. This is, of course, no exception. The Oracle replies, according to Apollodorus, quote, The bulging mouth of the wineskin, most excellent of men, untie it not until you have arrived at the height of Athens. Further interpretations of this also add, should he not listen, one day he'll die of grief. Hmm. Right then. Makes perfect sense. Totally clear and not at all confusing or difficult to interpret. Yep. For real though, when you look past the nonsensical language and the way the oracle always talks around herself, it basically just means, Aegeus, do not get drunk before you return to Athens, perhaps specifically the Acropolis in Athens. As expected, though, Aegeus proceeds to not follow instructions. First, though, as he begins his to make his way back to Athens, he drops by Corinth. Here he collides with another story we know so well, coming across a certain witchy woman. As you might remember, Aegeus features in Medea's story just before she's planning to kill her children. Aegeus speaks with her and, without knowing any information, promises to receive her in Athens no matter what. After this, he goes on his way, still having no idea what he's just promised, but he'll find out soon enough. But before Medea arrives in Athens post-murdering children, Aegeus has got some other mistakes to make. There's another step in the aforementioned not-following-instructions. Aegeus stops in the city of Trozen, where he knows the king, Pythias. Pythias has a daughter, Ethra. 
Aethra was originally meant to marry Bellerophon, one of the least problematic heroes. But before they could, he was banished from Corinth for murder, throwing my least problematic statement off just a tiny bit. So Aethra was promised to Bellerophon, but would never actually be able to marry him. This is a fun situation for a woman, because it basically just leaves her in limbo. She can't marry another man, that would be breaking her promise to Bellerophon, but she will never marry Bellerophon, and therefore she will stay single, having to live with her father forever. Bellerophon, meanwhile, does get to remarry somebody else. Have I mentioned how fun it was to be a woman in Greek mythology, let alone real ancient Greece? Good times, really. It sounds fun. So Pythias, unexpectedly feeling for his daughter's fucked up situation seeks to disrupt what would be her perpetual virginity. That part's weird. I don't really know what he intends to get out of that, but it does seem it comes from some sort of affection for her? It's tricky to interpret. There's a passing reference in Robert Graves about this also being Medea's doing, that she was casting some spell from afar, but it seems a stretch in my opinion. Whether it's Medea or a father's odd virginity-induced pity, Pythias decides to get Aegeus drunk, just hammered, with the intention of, yeah, Aegeus taking his daughter's virginity. Now, maybe Pythias did it sneakily, and Aegeus gets the benefit of the doubt when it comes to the oracle's prophecy, but I don't think that's likely. They drank wine like it was water then, so I'm pretty sure he was just plying Aegeus with it, and Aegeus was happily accepting, because he was partying and trozen with his friend. And wine! I mean, I don't blame him. I'm a month into isolation, and the idea of not drinking a glass of wine at night is absolutely fucking blasphemous at this point. As you all likely remember from the original Theseus episode, Pythias' strategy to have his daughter's virginity taken, gross, works. Aegeus does indeed sleep with Aethra after his night of wine drinking in Trozen. There's no evidence to the contrary, so oh how I hope it was consensual on her end. In truth, it was probably at least coerced because it was her father rooting for this, which is creepy all in itself. But it happens, and not only does Aegeus have sex with Aethra, but once he's fallen asleep, she's visited by Athena. Athena instructs Aethra that she is to wade across the shallow section of sea that lies between Trozen and the island of Scyria, where there is a tomb to Pelops's charioteer, Scyrus, whose name the island takes. Pelops, you'll recall, is famous for his chariot race that won him the hand of his wife, Hippodamia. It's all very murderous and leads to the curse on his house, sometimes called the curse of the Pelopidae, meaning his descendants, and sometimes called the curse on the house of Atreus, which is one of these descendants who kept that curse going strong. There's an episode on it, if you're curious. Pythias is one of the sons of Pelops. So Aethra wades across the island, and there she pours libations on the tomb, just as she's told. And there, again because of Athena, she is raped by Poseidon. While the night spent with Aegeus isn't necessarily rape, this one absolutely is. And, we're told, Poseidon is so generous as to attribute any child Aether has from this time as that of Aegeus, even if the resulting child does show signs of being the offspring of both of these horrible men. And what I think we take from this is that Aegeus was quite literally infertile, and he just blamed all the women in his life, and then he was proven right even though technically the son was of Poseidon. Aegeus, proving to be no better than Poseidon when it comes to the treatment of Aethra after the fact, instructs her, Hey, if you happen to have a kid from this, don't tell me about it. 
And I mean, don't do anything bad to the child. Just raise him in secret so I don't have to deal with a kid. When he's old enough, though, Aegeus adds, then I'm interested. He finds a nearby rock, a big one, and hides under it a pair of sandals and a sword. He tells Ethra, look, when the kid is old enough that he can lift this rock, that's the age I want to know him at. This is, of course, assuming it's a boy. If it's a girl, man, forget I exist entirely. Before he is old enough to lift it, though, kid's your problem. I'm not interested. Okay, bye, is basically how he ends the interaction, as with this, he heads back to Athens as if nothing out of the ordinary has happened at all. There's a festival there he simply can't miss. Now, in the Graves edition, he does note that Aegeus may have done all of this for the child and for Aethra's safety. If true, it's pretty reassuring. Maybe Aegeus isn't quite as awful as his soon-to-be son. This is intended to be protection from Aegeus's nephews, because he'd fought his brothers for the rulership of Athens that he now held, and they would take any opportunity to prevent him from having an heir to take his place. If they knew he had a son, well, they'd do their darndest to kill the child so that they could have Athens. Either way, Aethra is to raise a child alone in Trozen until he's old enough to lift a rock. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. 
At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Aegeus returns to Athens in time for the Panathenaic Games, one of the most important festivals of Athens. That one's historic, even if Aegeus may not be. During the games, Androgios, a son of Minos, sent by the Cretan people to compete, defeats everyone else in the games. He's so successful that Aegeus sees him as an opportunity. You see, there's this bull in Marathon really causing trouble. It's said that Heracles brought it back from Crete, though I've been unable to figure out why it's now terrorizing another locale. Regardless, it is, and Aegeus thinks that Androgios must be the perfect person to defeat it, because he's just defeated everyone else in these athletic games. He's strong, he's brave, he can do it. But, well, Androgios dies. Perhaps by the bull, as in one version, or perhaps killed somehow by Athenians. It doesn't matter how Androgios dies, just that he dies in or around Athens, and therefore Minos, his father, king of Crete, Crete which rules the Mediterranean, known for its naval prowess, blames Athens. Minos intends to wage war against Athens and Aegeus for the death of his son Androgios. He begins to put together his navy, building it up even more than it already was. Crete, it said, had the first navy of ancient Greece. Being an island and not a particularly big one, they had to learn fast. Between their relationships with the Greek mainland and their much closer neighbor, Egypt, there was a lot of sailing being done. They were good at it. Minos sails around the Greek mainland, collecting ships and gaining allies either by threat or general loyalty. When he arrives on the coast of Megara, in the same region of Athens, Attica, he lays siege to the city there, either called Megara itself or Nyssa, depending who you read. Everyone, though, agrees that it is ruled by a man named Nyssos. Is he a brother of Aegeus or from Egypt? Again, depends who you read. He is, however, the king, and he has a daughter named Scylla, a different Scylla. As Megara is threatened more and more, Nissos starts developing gray hairs from the stress of it. But the thing about his hair is the grays come in alongside, well, a little something special. You see, Nissos has a tuft of purple hair. Yes, purple hair. 
Ovid refers to it as a tuft, Apollodorus a single hair, but no matter how much of it there is, the purple hair is special. The purple hair is what gives Nissos his strength, all of his power as king, and his ability to succeed in anything. Minos wages war against Nissos, and his daughter, Scylla, watches intently from a tall tower in the city. It's said that the tower was built by Apollo and filled with his own music. That's what it was used for back before the war, and now Scylla uses it to watch. She watches so much of the battle below that she learns all about the Cretan people fighting against her own city. From there, a goddess takes hold of Scylla. Is it Aphrodite or is it Hera? Neither have a reason for doing so, but one of them does it anyway. Scylla falls in love with Minos by the powers of some goddess. A deep, dark, obsessive love from afar as she watches him in his ship laying waste to her father's city. Scylla is torn, even in her goddess-induced love, between her love of her father and her country and her newfound obsession with Minos. My beloved Ovid tells it beautifully, obviously, as Scylla laments her feelings. She knows she should mourn the war being waged against her people, but were it not for the war, she would never have learned of Minos and his beauty, his skill with, as Ovid frequently says, the shaft of his bow. The powers of the goddess are strong, and it isn't long before Scylla convinces herself that she must end the war, for fear that someone on her side might tragically injure, or worse, kill her newly beloved Minos, that she simply couldn't face, so she decides she must put an end to it herself. Scylla, daughter of Nissos, king of Megara, or Nyssa, in any event, the one being horribly attacked by Minos and his Cretan navy, sneaks into her father's room in the dead of the night. There, under the spell of a goddess, convinced that she alone can end this war to save the man she believes she's in love with, she approaches her father with a knife, and in one quick swipe... She cuts off his tuft of purple hair. You thought she was going to kill him, didn't you? Well, she kind of did. This is such a Greek mythology thing, but in some sources, this seems to have killed him, removing his lovely lilac lock. Or in others, it just automatically causes his defeat, being nearly as bad as death, though he may still be living. Having done this, destroying her father by cutting off his precious piece of purple hair... Scylla brings the hair to Minos as proof of what she's done, and of her love, and her wish for him to win the war against her own home and her own father. She tells him all of this, of her devotion to him, and what she's willing to do, and has done, to prove it. She throws herself before him, asking him to take her with him when he returns to Crete, having won the war. Minos, though, Minos doesn't react as she had hoped and assumed— Minos is under no spell, and he is, 
well, absolutely disgusted by what she's done. Don't tell him what his wife did. He tells her this, how horrible her actions are, how disgraceful. Patricide, if that's what it is, you'll remember, is one of the most horrific crimes that can be committed in ancient Greece. And if it isn't, if we trust the version where he didn't die, still, she chose the enemy over her father and her city. It's nearly as disgraceful. Why did the goddess, whoever it was, cause her to love him this way and wish to do this? There's no reason provided, no explanation at all. She was, it seems, just being fucked with. Minos tells Scylla that he would never allow her on his island after what she's done, that she should be banished completely. He says a whole host of other awful things and leaves Scylla hurt and very, very angry. Scylla, in her hurt and anger, prepares to chase after Minos and his ships as they prepare to sail away from Megara and back, having succeeded to Crete. Yes, it seems in order to avenge his dead son, Androgios, he wanted to defeat a city in Attica, not necessarily the city in Attica, Athens, that actually caused his son's death. It's very Greek mythology. So as Minos and all his Cretan naval ships set sail off the coast of Megara on the way back across the Mediterranean to Crete, Scylla throws herself into the water, swimming after the ships. Her anger gives her strength, and she swims with unnatural speed, catching up with the ships and reaching to cling on to the bow of Minos's ship as he looks down in confused horror as this woman has swam after his ship and managed to latch onto the front of it. Fucking insane. But as she clings on, she is, quite suddenly, attacked by a bird, an osprey, for it seems, whether she killed him or not, her father, Nissos, was indeed transformed into an osprey, and he is incredibly angry with his daughter for what she's done. The bird, her father, pecks awfully at Scylla until finally she is forced to let go of the ship and falls back into the water. There, she too transforms, into a bird called the Kyrus, or a fish also called the Kyrus. The name comes from the Greek to cut for what she'd done to her father's precious purple hair. Oh, friends, thank you for listening. Let me tell you, when I started writing this episode, I was going to retell the story of Theseus with more and different information. And I still will, but it turns out there's so much leading up to his story that it made for an entire episode in itself. Which leads me to be so glad that I've started to do this because you just learn more by digging into that old stuff. The stuff that I just wasn't in a position to dig so deep into and I didn't really know how long this would go on and that I'd need to. This is where we are. I personally had never come across this story of Scylla before or the war with Minos at all, and it's been fascinating. Her story also varies across the sources to such a degree that there will be a short Patreon episode coming out very soon detailing the different interpretations of her, her actions, Minos's reaction, and most notably, her death. Apollodorus tells a very fucked up version that I couldn't really fit into this telling, but oh man, does it need to be told. 
Well, thank you again. I hope you're all managing through this completely fucked up period we're living in. Please, if you can, give me a five-star review on iTunes so I can continue to grow this podcast and hopefully offset the crazy drop in listeners that I've experienced with people no longer commuting. Plus, it just feels nice to get those. You're all the best. Please stay safe and healthy and home if you can and wash your damn hands. I am Liv and I do love this shit just so much. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.